millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello once again and welcome to Reads Like a Four, the podcast that deals with critics, reviews and cultural criticism. I'm your host Adam Brooks and this week's guest is Sam Parker. Here's Sam talking a little bit about his career in journalism so far. So I realised, thanks to Facebook, that I actually moved to London almost nine years ago to the day. Um, And my first job was working for uh, FHM and Zoo Magazine, rest in peace, um, which was an excellent kind of introduction to the industry. Um, I left university convinced that I was sort of destined for for great things and um it was quite humbling to suddenly find myself doing vox pops on oxford street with uh uh with a zoo t-shirt on and a, a cardboard cutout of katie perry or um eating the uk's biggest burger for uh, for a photo shoot so that was my kind of introduction was the, the the lads mags um after that i worked for aol that was my first full-time job on their music site and then i was um fortuitous to be there when they bought the huffington post and launched that in the UK, which at the time was kind of the um, the new kid on the block, the exciting uh, uh, website in the UK. Um, I pitched to my then editor that I'd like to do a arts and um, book section, which wasn't in the original plan. And um, they decided to go for it. Um, and I found myself reviewing books and, and art shows, despite not knowing a huge amount about art. Um, and it was absolutely fantastic. I did that for about a year. And then um, I was involved in another uh, quite um, what would go on to be quite a significant launch in the UK, uh, which was BuzzFeed. Um, so I was on the launch team for BuzzFeed UK, which was probably the most fun I've ever had, I think, in journalism. Uh, I was only there for a few months at the beginning, but we were basically just sat in a room uh trying to come up with funny ways to make a name for ourselves in the uk market um using the kind of shareable listicle format that had been um, successful in the us um from there i i I moved to uh, esquire five years ago to to join their um digital team as deputy digital editor and then um was made digital editor a few digital editor a few years later which is the role i'm still in now um i edit everything really from kind of men's style to to entertainment so um film and tv um uh, a little bit of music a little bit of sport and um the area that i guess i'm most interested in i suppose which is the the long form um stuff that we do which is kind of features on just about anything that um that is interesting or different or, or kind of um 
um, or a person, you know, it could be a profile, um, anything that's kind of interesting, kind of three to 4,000 words plus. Um, and I write a little bit of that as well. So that's me. So given that Sam's worked at BuzzFeed, Empire, The Huffington Post and edits long form journalism outlet The Q, we talked a lot about the balance, benefits and drawbacks of both short and long form journalism, as well as masculinity and how it's represented on Esquire's platforms, Twitter and whether journalists have a responsibility as far as the health of their readers goes. So without further ado, let's get on with this episode of Readers Like a Four, episode 18 with Sam Parker. Perfect. Okay, so I mean, I, that seems a good place to start. Actually, you, you, you mentioned just now that you've obviously worked for. I guess you kind of worked almost at two two extremes in terms of the length of of, of writing. You know, uh, BuzzFeed. A lot of the early articles that you might have been involved with were were pretty short on words uh, and kind of designed to, to 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 garner attention. And now you obviously, as well as uh, commissioning long form stuff for Esquire, you also co edit the Q, I believe, which which deals solely in in long form journalism. I wondered what the appeals are of, of short versus long form, and what the rules are. I mean, things like. Can if you're writing a piece about the history of a country, can that be anything but a long read? And, and do lists only work as an article of 500 words or less? Kind of how do you how do you decide what's long form and what isn't? Oh well, I think if you were going to take the example of the history of a country, it would be far better as a as a listicle with lots of pictures mm-hmm. than a uh, than 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 three thousand four thousand words. Um, yeah, I suppose they are kind of two extremes. Although BuzzFeed did go on to and and, and does produce a lot of um, good quality long form as well. Mm-hmm. Um, my first hit with BuzzFeed, which at the time we considered anything with over a million views, was um, the nine types of hangover you can have, um, as illustrated by uh, pictures of owls. <laughs> uh, and you know that that was a short piece, although you know it, it had a little bit of writing in it. Um, and that remains one of my, my sort of proudest um, pieces, I suppose. But um, if you if the question is, how do you pick, how do you decide whether a subject warrants a long or a short read? Yeah, uh, I think, you know, I think it depends on on what you're setting out to achieve. Um, are you more looking to entertain or inform? Uh, who is the writer doing it and where do their strengths lie? I sort of think that any subject within reason well, certainly any subject can be treated with uh, levity and, and you know, concise wit, if you like, which is what they do at BuzzFeed and can be made kind of fun. Whether anything can be a long read is, is, is more debatable. I think you need to have more that you need to have multiple strands. Uh, you need to have multiple sources. You need to have some kind of narrative that you can switch gears between. Um, you know, scene setting and colour, going back to, to facts and information. So there's a lot more, obviously, there's a lot more going on in a long form piece. Um, but yeah, I, I kind of take it on a case by case basis. Um, certainly as a writer, I can think of examples where um, I set out to do uh, an interview, for example, that, that should have by rights been a short, a, a relatively short form piece, a, a Q&A, mm-hmm. um, that turned into a longer interview that, that you know, was almost long form length. Um, so it's definitely case by case. Okay. Um, and what would you say about perhaps the argument that some people have that long form articles are, are better, are better read in print, that they're harder to read online. 
Do you, mm. is, there, is, is there, I wonder if there was any kind of, if there's research or, or, or any sort of studies that you or Esquire have taken out about how pieces like that are consumed online? Yeah, I mean, there are a few different schools of thought with it. Um, uh, I, I, obviously, reading a long form article in print is, is a beautiful uh, experience and um, a very pleasurable thing. I mean, I subscribe to the London Review of Books and every fortnight it comes in and, you know, it's one of the great pleasures uh, of my kind of week to sit down with that and um, and read it uh, very slowly, you know, by candlelight or whatever, you know, the, the romantic long form uh, thing. But also people do it on their phones. And what we find at Esquire is that some of our most popular articles of all time uh, are actually in that bracket of three, three to five thousand words long. Um, there are different schools of thought. I mean, the first kind of memorable long read i suppose long read moment online was um i think it was the new york times um oh god i've forgotten the name of it now was it called snowfall or something like that mm -hmm. it, 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 you know and and they they really went to town with it was a story of some natural disaster and they really went to town with moving graphics and beautiful pictures and and, and did the whole thing on it and a lot of people just found it kind of unreadable you know um and then you look at again the london review of books you know they put their long reads up very very simply um i think uh you know the, sometimes sort of fifty thousand words long um and it will just be text and and it can go viral so, so i don't think there's any hard and fast rules with it certainly i think chunking the article up which to use a term that we use at hearst i don't know if that's kind of industry-wide or not mm -hmm. but uh you know making sure that you you, you break things up with pictures, um, uh, video if appropriate, um, pull quotes. Hey, it's the same premise as what they do on, on print. Um, there is the risk of overdoing it and getting too um, bells and whistles about it, which then becomes a distraction. Mm -hmm. And this is something that, that uh, myself and my fellow long read geeks at the queue, we, we kind of debate among ourselves from time to time is, you know, what is the optimum amount of, of, of stuff that isn't text in your long read? Um, and I think, you know, as long as stuff is in there because it adds to the story rather than just being there for the sake of it, then I think you're along the right lines. Yeah. Um, in terms of long form pieces uh, across Esquire, how much crossover is there between what's in the in the print mag and the online content? Do, do all articles in print eventually make it online or are they entirely distinct? So I would say in the long reads, certainly almost all go online. Mm -hmm. uh, um uh not not everything else that goes into print it kind of works for digital often because it's too short actually right um, you know obviously on, on on this kind of if you think about the front of a, of a magazine where um it's often kind of product driven and, and caption sort of driven um if you try and take that and put it online it just looks so small as to be um as to feel not quite right um, but certainly the long reads we, we, we take, the cover story each month um, goes online. Um, and yeah, like I say, they're, they're some of our most popular pieces. And, you know, we're very lucky. I'm very lucky to work for a magazine that places a lot of value in that kind of journalism. And, and one of the few magazines or, or print publications in the UK that, that's really devoted to it. Um, and, and, you know, spend a lot of time and, and, and money on it, frankly. Yeah. And do you find that the, the people consuming uh, Esquire's online writing and the people buying the print magazine are demographically similar? I mean, presumably it's, 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 it's largely male, but is the remit yeah. in the kind of stories that you'll include the same? 
Yeah, basically. I mean, uh, yeah, you're right. It's about 70 to 75 percent male um, online. Um, I would imagine it's similar, if not a little higher when it comes to print, uh, although I don't know for sure. Um, yeah, I mean, what, what we did find once when we did a little bit of sort of demographic research was that um, men who read the website um, are younger than the men who read print, but they but they think that the website is being read by older men, if that makes sense. Right. I see. So uh, there's a... They, yeah, they, so they all imagine asterisk. they imagine they're amongst the youngest bracket of people reading online when in fact they're, they're not necessarily no it's that they believe that the other people reading the website are, are young are, are older yeah and, yeah that's what i mean yeah 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 so, so they're sort of joining a, a, an older club of people i suppose um but no i mean you know it, it's it, it's very very hard i mean the audiences are are, are, are different um obviously online you can get um uh big spikes of audiences because of one story they got picked up in one area of reddit or something like that and then that can skew the the sort of demographic um you know for, for that week or that day um whereas the print obviously have a have a subscription base that they know they're talking to all of the time so it, it is it is slightly different but yeah it's, it's fundamentally it's the same guy it's a it's a young educated um uh uh aspirational guy who likes good writing and a bit of a reverence and enjoys you know the finer things of life um but still wants to read some heavy hitting things about politics or whatever from time to time as well mm-hmm. um does there come a point uh, at editor level where curation or the ability to find unique voices and ideas and stories becomes as important a skill as being able to write a good piece yourself do you think there's there's a point when you kind of reach an editor's level where where recognizing great writing in other people becomes more important than 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 having writing it yourself yeah and it's really annoying because you don't get you don't get any of the acclaim or the (laughs) (laughs) you don't get your names on the pieces anymore no i i think i think if i think if you if you're a journalist who really loves writing and that's your first love and then you you reach a certain point as an editor there is this kind of moment this kind of existential crisis where you feel like you're at a a sort of fork in the road where it's like okay i'm either going to continue to be a writer which um often means going freelance when you've hit a certain ceiling on a publication um or you or you become an editor and then your job and your life becomes a lot more about um identifying and elevating uh, and refining the work of other people as you say um and i think you know the two are, are sort of obviously very closely linked i don't think you can be a good editor without being a good writer um you can certainly be a good writer without being a good editor necessarily but i think if you're going to be a good editor you have to at the core be a be a solid writer mm-hmm. um and um and yeah and i suppose at that point it does become more important being able to um identify um other people's ability and, and bring the best out in them. I mean, it's, uh, you know, it's a difficult thing because writers are, are very unique. Um, well, we're very special snowflakes, aren't we? And, we, <laughs> you know, we all have egos and, and, and opinions and, uh, and that sort of a thing. But, um, but yeah, I mean, finding the stories and finding the writers is definitely for me now, um, kind of the main challenge of the job, I suppose, on the editorial side. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, 
you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah. And is it very easy when someone brings you uh, an idea or pitch... Is it very easy to identify whether whether that pitch is Esquire or isn't? Uh, uh, you know, are there, I mean, I guess there's nothing as simple as, as a list of criteria, but but what are the kind of factors you bear in mind? Um, I think I think I've always thought of the long read section as kind of where the the parameters of what is on brand, if you like, is is at its absolute broadest. So. Um, you know, somebody comes with a great long read idea and it doesn't fall into one of the, the typical columns of what a squire does, you know, style and sport and everything else. That's not necessarily a problem as long as the idea is good enough and the pitch is strong enough and the writer is um, is good enough. I mean, clearly, you know, there are some pitches you get that you look at and you go, well, that belongs in the new statesman or that belongs in l magazine uh it doesn't belong in esquire mm-hmm. and that that does happen but that isn't usually driven by the well it is usually driven by the subject but i am i do try and be really open-minded when it comes to to what will what will cover i mean for example um one of my favorite long reads we've published in the last year was a piece on um uh, the story behind weatherspoons and um, how um, how that chain came to be and the entrepreneur behind it. Um, Weatherspoons is not a brand that we would touch, frankly, in other any, in any other way. Mm-hmm. you know, we, we we would wouldn't put it in our food and drink section. We wouldn't talk about it in our like going out or travel or anything like that. Um, but because the story was was good enough, the business story behind it was interesting enough, and the writer was was very good. Then 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 I ran it. So, um, 
so yeah, you do, I mean, you do have a sense of whether something is an Esquire story or not, but I try and keep that as broad as possible when it comes to, to long reads. Okay. Um, and, and a bit more broadly, are there trends in journalism at the moment that you think are counterproductive? And are there new forms of writing or new ways of getting ideas in front of people that are encouraging? Uh, trends in writing. Mm. <laughs> I don't know about counterproductive. I mean, there's certainly there are very annoying trends that, that come up mm-hmm. in journalism that we can all be, you know, that... that Digital journalism has in some ways been one succession of annoying trend after the other that that actually the job is to avoid rather than than uh, participate in. Um, you know, the, the clickbait period, the, the period where everybody was writing for um, for Google, which has now sort of come back. And, you know, these things push your um, your headlines and your copy into a certain direction that, that doesn't normally fit the brand that you're with. Mm-hmm. You know, so, so these aren't great trends. One trend that really annoyed me was the um, the confessional personal essay <laughs> yep. that everybody was doing. When it, oh, it, it seemed to me that a bunch of kind of people in their early 20s were being convinced that writing some embarrassing story about their sex life was was kind of going to get them uh, ahead in their career you know and and certainly it felt interesting to begin with but then i think uh, well certainly the, the problem for me was that there wasn't a diverse enough range of journalists writing these articles so they all tended to be of a type yes yes i, I mean i mean yeah that's a wider problem in journalism isn't yeah. it anyway but yeah you're right you know it became this sort of bizarre arms race for who could write the most excruciatingly uh, embarrassing confessional about some you know something that happened to them at university or something um so you know that that wasn't a good trend um i didn't like the the kind of the upworthy is that what it was called upworthy you know the 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 real um uh, clickbait headlines uh thing that was going on for a long time and then clickbait kind of become this this term that people use whenever they did like an article uh, when originally it meant um a headline that, that promised something uh far in excess of what the article delivered mm-hmm. um that was a bad um phase you know there's been lots of them because we're we're, we're kind of we're in the strange phase where we're, we're figuring it out and um my my hope and my my faith is that long term what we're all circling back in on is what print has kind of known and been doing for for decades centuries which is that quality will win out and knowing your audience and speaking to them directly will will win out in the end and um and eventually all of the kind of the tricks and and the um you know the the shortcuts to traffic and all that kind of thing will will lose and um and journalism will win you know that's kind of the uh on my more optimistic days that's how i think of it yeah well, do, um, on, on that theme i wanted to talk a little bit about twitter um mm. because i wondered if it, it feels to me a little bit that the the kind of the growth of social media particularly twitter as an example has in some ways helped journalism a lot because I I find that what draws me to long reads now is seeing lots of people recommend it, uh, people that I trust and people that I like, and that's not something that necessarily would have happened if Twitter wasn't around. You know, that, it's certainly not something that necessarily would have happened in print. Um, mm. So, do you think to an extent Twitter makes journalism more accessible, uh, or is there an argument that now we can hear directly from famous people and news stories are often broken on Twitter that it's mm. doing the things that journalism used to? Well, that's a good question. Um, is it doing the things that journalism used to? I, I wouldn't. 
I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. I think fundamentally it supports journalism and helps it spread. And that is something we should be thankful for. I guess um, the character limit alone means that it's never going to be a, a replacement for journalism. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess it depends. You know, if you're talking about breaking a news story um, uh, in its simplest facts, then I suppose perhaps it has replaced traditional journalism in, in, in some ways or, or at least exists alongside it. Um, I've never been a, a political journalist or a news reporter, never never wanted to be. But, I, you know, I, I imagine that if I had a piece of breaking news, then, then I'd go to Twitter before I would, you know, build an article on my website. Um, whether it, uh, going back to the long form thing, I mean, yeah, it, it definitely helps things um, spread. And um, uh, a lot of stories live or die by how well it performs on, on Twitter. I do remember when Twitter used to be funny, um, uh, you know, which I, I say facetiously, but also with, with seriousness. It, it used to be um, that Facebook was a real sorry twitter was was within itself a very creative kind of platform yeah i do I, I do feel sometimes like every time i log in i'm being presented with a series of of mm. urgent crises it's become this sort of this sort of braying incessant you know um performative space where it's supposed to be this barometer of of, of public mood and 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 all that sort of thing and I think perhaps it, it it is to an extent, but certainly journalists in particular in particular get way too bogged down in it. And well, um, I was uh, I was going to uh, ask you about this because your your Twitter bio describes it as a place where journalists act like celebrities and celebrities act like journalists. I, I, I wonder what you meant by that specifically. Um, <laughs> well, I, I mean, I, I think what I mean by that is that um, you know uh, celebrities use it to circumnavigate. Um, the traditional press and speak directly to their fans and set the record straight and all that and I think that's good for celebrities and it probably clears up a lot of nonsense. Journalists um, in in kind of reverse uh, like to think that um, that they're they're kind of celebrities and that they're terribly important and you know um, the the following that you have and the caliber of the people who talk to you on there and which which kind of little cliques you're in and everything is kind of important and and that's something that as the years have gone by I've just become less interested in I suppose although that isn't to say that I'm not still you know beholden to the site and on it every day Mm -hmm. um but yeah I, I do think that um journalists uh it's it's a very when what you do is right and and uh, Twitter is a platform where people are writing things all day. You, you know, it's like a, it's, it's kind of an ego uh, boost, isn't it? And, I, you know, I always think about the, the books we all could have written. <laughs> if, <laughs> yeah. If you were to put all the, the words together that I've, I've sort of tossed into Twitter for, for you know, for some tiny bump of, uh, uh, you know, what do you call it when you get a... Um, oh, like a dopamine hit. Kind a, of, yeah, yeah, a dopamine hit, you know, I, I've kind of wasted a lot of time and energy on it but you know it's still a good it's still a good platform it's still a good platform for finding writers i mean we have um uh, a couple of columnists online who are um great writers um that i only knew through through twitter really um and got to know their writing that way and and certain you know certainly i've commissioned journalists pretty much on the basis of uh, something that they tweeted um, how funny they are on Twitter, the points that they make on Twitter. So, so you know, it, it is powerful and it's easy to be 
kind of cynical about and dismissive of. But um, I, d I don't think it's replaced journalism. I think that would be a sad day indeed. I think it's uh, it's another tool, but it shouldn't be the only tool. And I, I think that that's the trap is that you start to think that somehow the noise on Twitter represents the the, the wider public opinion. And I think, you know, without getting too kind of grandiose, I, I think that you can see that problem in, in lots of areas of, of public life, some that are far more important than journalism. Yeah, well, certainly there's been a kind of the equivalent of a, of a, of a, a, a slap in the face for people that felt that Twitter was reflective of society every time there's any kind of uh, election yeah. or referendum, I guess. You know. Yeah, Twitter told me Ed Miliband was going to win. I was all ready for it. Well, there you go. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I went to bed thinking I was going to wake up to an Ed Miliband Britain and, uh, and it didn't happen. Twitter's mm. fault. Absolutely. <laughs> um, well, to stay on the subject of technology a little bit, and forgive me because this is a bit of a reach, but um, one of your longer pieces online that I read was about unplugging from technology and isolating yourself in a Scottish body for a week and the benefits to, to one's health and one's state of mind. I wondered, how do you square that with the responsibility you have to put a certain number of articles online and the need to increase <laughs> engagement? Is there is there any, you know, some people would argue that, you know, fast food companies or city planners have a responsibility to the people they serve, you know, and to their health do you think there's a responsibility amongst journalists to a reader's health to, to not waste their time to not mislead them to not promise an article that then isn't what's delivered wow um <laughs> that's, that's a big question adam yeah. uh, is it is it our responsibility no i don't i don't think it's our responsibility to to limit the amount we publish although i think certainly some publications should certainly consider it um <laughs> Uh, um, the digital detox thing it, it's interesting isn't it I mean you know you see Apple making uh, or at least making gestures now to you know to get your phone to tell you when you've been on it too long and all that kind of thing yeah. I sort of think it's one of those things that, um, that will just iron itself out with successive generations I think we've already seen that you know the Snapchat generation are, are, are far more savvy with their privacy for example, than than my generation were, you know, we were the guinea pigs of Facebook and we threw everything on there and we, you know, we, we thought this is fantastic. Let's live our life out in the open. And um, it seems to me that kind of instinctively people who are 10 years younger are more protective of their, um, their privacy and are, are more um, more drawn to ephemeral kind of um, social media. And so I think perhaps that that in time we will learn to spend less time on social media in the same way that we now watch less telly than we used to and you know probably listen to less radio than we once did i i don't know it's it's a difficult question uh, but i certainly don't think the responsibility falls on um journalists we've got enough to do <laughs> well like <laughs> i agree too that's very that's very much my token devil's advocate question really um but while while we're tackling massive themes and uh, and coming to the end of the episode uh i thought you'd be a good person to talk to given that you started your your career on this on the street for zoo um and and obviously now working at esquire very two very different types of men's magazine or men's mm. men's outlet do you think there there's been a change in the nature of masculinity and how has that altered what esquire covers um we've i've talked to several guests about the more obvious changes like the kind of slow withdrawal of women from the cover of print magazines but is there have you noticed a deeper shift in the kinds of topics men want to read about and the kind of viewpoints that they enjoy or are prepared to tolerate um 
That's another tough one. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. I apologise. No, no, it's, it's a good question. And, you know, what's what's happening with masculinity is, is one of the big questions at the moment that uh, certainly not just the squire is, is trying to answer. I think everybody is trying to, to figure that one out. And it's something that in my personal life I've given a lot of thought to um, and in my professional life. Um, a few years ago, uh, I think it was 2005, um, I wrote a piece, full print, for a squire that was about male suicide. Mm-hmm. And um, it was in the wake of uh, the, 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 um, the government survey that, that pointed out, I think for the first time, that suicide had become the number one killer of all men under 50 in the UK. Um, and that was something that, that Alex Bilmez, who is the, the editor of Esquire Print, he was he encouraged me to write. I don't know if that's something that would have made it into a kind of glossy lifestyle magazine 10 years ago. Um, possibly not. Um, sorry, there's just a train going by my window. <laughs> that's okay. Um, so I think the, the conversation around mental health has become a lot more open um, and I think the media has, has has definitely played a role in that as, as celebrities and, and, and charities have, have done the most amount of work um, charities like Calm and, and, and um, you know the Samaritans um, so I think that that has been one change um, going back to your, your opening point about um, you know women on the covers and all that kind of thing yeah, I mean that has definitely that has definitely changed even in just the the, the sort of ten years almost that that I've been in journalism. Mm-hmm. Um, attitudes have, have changed um, for the better, I think. Um, other areas of masculinity, I, I, I don't know. It's difficult to say, but that's part of the challenge and it's part of the fun of of our job is to is to try and reflect the way that men are changing. You know, some things never change. You know. Um, men still want to read cool stories about sportsmen and and look at nice watches well some men do not all but mm-hmm. um you know so so some things never change but yeah i mean clearly society has changed massively and part of our job and and part of the fun of it is to is to reflect that i mean you know that the publications that stood still on these issues are are gone um uh and so you you, you have to evolve you have to evolve with the platforms that you're working on and the tools at your disposal, but also you have to evolve with the things that you, the topics that you talk about and the attitudes that you reflect. And I like to think that Esquire does a good job of it. I think lots of other, um, I think the remaining men's uh, publications and websites in the UK, generally speaking, also do a good job of it. It certainly feels like the the, the survivors are the ones that have, you know, more willing to adapt and change fairly quickly, I suppose. Yeah, but I think um, it doesn't just apply to to men's magazines. I mean, you know, you look at um, the way that that newspapers report things is very different now as well. Mm, yeah, um, and um, and and rightly so, I think. Um, absolutely. Uh, so, a final question before we get to a, a brief quiz. I wondered um, how we talked a little bit about diversity in writing earlier. I wondered for, from how diverse a group of people do you receive pitches? Uh, mm. Do you find 
do you find that the majority of people writing for Esquire, which is primarily a, a portal for men, are men? Uh, do you find that the popularity of pieces written by women uh, is is you know e- equal or better to those written by men? Do you find that uh, that women or people of color are, are, are less likely to pitch to you? Kind of what's what's the what's the the state? of diversity in terms of who pitches to you and, and, and what variety of writers you commission? Well, uh, our most popular story ever is um, was written by um, Catla Moran. So it's, it, it certainly isn't the case that, you know, we, only male writers can write for Esquire or anything like that. Um, you know, we have female staff writers, of course, and, and always have done. Um, in terms of what I get pitched, that's difficult to say. I mean, you know, I, I get emails from people I don't, I can't, I, I don't know what their background is in every mm. case. Um, but I like to think that we do, you know, we do publish from as, as broad a range of um, people from as broad a range of backgrounds as as, as possible. But it, you know, it's, at the end of the day, it's about the quality of the, the story and the, and the quality of the writer, mm-hmm. you know. Sounds like a cop-out, but it... it, it it is, you know, I mean, when, when you get a great pitch from somebody, you, you don't really, you don't consider where they're from, you just, or, or who they are, really, you just consider, can they write, and is it a good, is it a good idea? Yeah, yeah. Um, journalism more broadly clearly has a problem with, with, um, with uh, diversity, and you only have to look at the, the statistics to, to see that. Um you know there aren't enough people from diverse backgrounds in journalism and a lot of that has to do with the way the industry is uh is is kind of made difficult at the very beginning with things like unpaid internships and um uh you know um most of broadsheet writers and uh, are kind of from private educated privately educated backgrounds and that kind of a thing um but uh that isn't something that i think is a a, a big problem at Squire. Mm-hmm. Okay, good to know. Um, this is probably a, a good point for me to mention to people as well. There's an organisation that, that I've been on and off involved with that, that sort of seeks to increase people's access to creative jobs like journalism. So uh, if anyone Googles Arts Emergency, uh, it's definitely worth a look there to see what they might be able to do to help you if you're uh, if you're thinking of becoming a journalist or working in the creative arts or if you already work in the creative arts and want to kind of offer some, some help to kind of level the playing field, then Arts Emergency is a good place to look up. Um, so that brings us more or less to the end of the episode, but uh, we end every, every episode of the podcast with a brief quiz. So I've got five phrases or short passages passages here uh, some of them were written by you some of them were not written by you uh, and i wondered <laughs> if you'd be able to tell the difference so um oh. so here we go with number one okay marcella has always been a bit unhinged it's the sort of crime drama that if you saw it on the street you'd keep your head down and hope it wasn't going to come over and talk to you is that you or is that not you i don't know what marcella is so it can't be me but okay <laughs> that's right that's louisa meller uh, from den of geek on uh, marcella the, the tv series uh, number two LeBlanc, who will presumably be reviving his popular 90s catchphrase, How You Doing, each time he sees an impressive chassis, has been chosen as the man to co-lead Top Gear 2.0 and increase the show's popularity in America, where they also have cars. <laughs> oh, God. Maybe me. Um, I'm going to say no. It was you, I'm afraid. Uh-huh. That was you on uh, Matt LeBlanc's announcement as the future host of Top Gear back in 2016. Uh, yeah. So that's one out of two so far. Number three. 
While the Walking Dead's gnashing shufflers aren't much of a threat anymore, Thrones' walkers are a frantic force of destruction, ultra-creepy to look at and seemingly unstoppable, as every victim they claim becomes a new undead soldier. Definitely not me. That isn't you. That's Ben Turner in the Evening Standard looking back at Game of Thrones Series 5. Two out of three. Number four. Ever since the turn of the millennium, we've been gritting our teeth as the greatest movie actor of the 70s and 80s churned out turkey after turkey, seemingly content just to still be working in his dotage. Not me. That one is you. That's uh, oh. that's you on, again, we've gone back to 2016, you on Robert oh. De Niro's Hands of Stone. <laughs> no uh, of that at all. So there we on. go, 50% success rate. And finally, number five. Because whether you like it or not, music in 2014 isn't about bands or rappers or even really men. It's about smart, talented women in their 20s who you have a slightly unedifying crush on and secretly listen to on Spotify. Uh, that sounds like it might have been me. Yeah. That one was you. <laughs> that's you on Taylor Swift in 2014. So that's, uh, that's a three out of five. Uh, not too shabby. Nice one. <laughs> Super. Uh, that's, that's the end of the quiz and the end of the episode. Thanks so much, Sam, for talking to us. No problem. Be the there we are. My thanks to Sam for joining me this week. If you enjoyed this episode, I recommend trying episode eight with shortlist's Chris Mandel, who had lots to say about what a men's magazine should be doing in 2018, and also episode 15 with Boyd Hilton of Heat and Pilot TV magazine fame, who uh, talked in depth as well about how to position a magazine and what happens when you need to rethink your strategy. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Reads Like a Four on both of those. Uh, I'm especially keen in future episodes to speak to writers of colour, LGBTQI plus writers, food and restaurant critics, and book and literary critics uh, so if you are one or if you know one please email reads like a four at gmail.com i'll be back next week with a brand new chat with another critic until then thanks so much for listening uh, if you're enjoying what you hear please do drop us a review on itunes it really does help and uh, feel free to get in touch as i mentioned reads like a four at gmail.com until next time thanks and goodbye